Good morning, good day, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are listening to this podcast. Welcome to A Good Good Thing. I'm Neil. Also, good night. No, because good night is the final. That's what you say when you leave. You don't say it as a hello. Oh, God, we've done this before. Yeah, as you well. have done this before, you moron. Wow. And I managed to do that without stuttering, and now I'm going to have to do it again. Let's just not do it. There's too many words. Yeah, it's fine. Welcome to A Good Good Thing, everyone. I hope you're having a good week full of great things. And if you're not, well, you're in luck. Because from here on in, Jack, what is this? It's a good vibes only space. That it is. We've got a good, 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 good thing going on. What more could we find? Jack, how many times have you watched a charity advert or a charity show and sat there and thought, I want to help. I want to do something. And then you've thought the exact same thing a year later when you've seen another one. I don't want to answer that because I think it'll make me sound unnecessarily callous. I don't, I don't think it will because I think it's something that everyone, all with good intention, wants to do. We all want to help and give back. But a lot of the time it is about not knowing how to do that and not knowing how to take the steps. That's why I'm really excited for the guests we have today. We're joined in the studio by a woman called Daban Sharesh, who is the founder of an incredible organization called the Lotus Flower that works in conflict zones in um, northern Iraq, Kurdistan, um, in IDP camps, which is... Internally displaced people. That's correct. And she's coming in to talk to us about that work, but also how she actually, she actively and operationally worked on creating this charity and then how they started affecting change. It's an inspirational story and it's a story with inspirational results for many of the people that have been involved with it. Um, and also, I think, for Neil and I, who had the pleasure of having this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. Taban, hello and welcome to a uh, Good Good Thing. Now we're here to talk about the incredible, important work that you do with your organisation, The Lotus Flower. And I think the best place for us to start is to look at how The Lotus Flower came about. So could you tell us a bit more about how you came to start the organisation? Thank you for having me on here first. Um, I don't know where I start and how long I've got because it's very long. So I guess the lotus flower kind of flourished more from personal and professional experience. So I'm a child genocide survivor from Saddam's era and I know what it's like to be displaced. I was uh, in prison at the age of four. Um, we escaped being buried alive. My father was poisoned, ended up in the UK at the age of six as a refugee. And so those personal experiences have always stayed with me. Um, ended up working in the city, had a very normal life um, in the UK. And in August 2014, I decided to leave everything and go back to northern Iraq, Kurdistan, where ISIS had gone into the region. And I stayed there for 15 months. And the, the situation, there was a humanitarian crisis happening. And um, I was very front line with the work that we were doing. So my first day, I was flying over ISIS, delivering aid and rescuing people with the organisation that I worked for. And we spent 15 months there. They built camps, they built schools, they did hundreds of distributions. I think they reached about a million people while I was there, which was phenomenal. And it was very frontline work. And I got to work very closely, I'd say, with the Yazidi women and the women that had been raped and sold on as sex slaves. 
And when I came back to the UK after 15 months, I could not just go back to what I was doing. So I decided to set up the Lotus Flower. Um, and I actually just registered without knowing how I was going to do anything. I didn't have any money. It was in my living room. I had no clue apart from I knew why I was doing it. And I wanted to help women and girls. And so for me, actually registering it and making it official forced me to move. Why did you decide on the lotus flower as a name? For me, the lotus flower grows in muddy water and blossoms um, daily. And that represents women going through struggles and blossoming daily um, from the strength that they've got. So it shows strength and resilience. Lots of people have these daydreams about, like, I want to make a positive difference to the world. And then they never actually go ahead and like make the change to their life to be able to do that or they don't follow through. So I guess what I want to ask is, how did you go from just thinking that you know this was wrong and you could make a difference to actually go through and change your entire life and leave your job in the city? I think what stops a lot of people is fear. You know, a lot of people are really scared to step out of their comfort zone. I was working in a well-paid job in the city I had a secure living I had my mortgage was being paid daily um, for me to step out of that comfort zone was a massive step but actually for me personally it wasn't um, I think I've always had a yearning to want to do something and give back because of my own personal experience I'd never had the opportunity to apply it so when I went back um, it, it just woke me up and woke something up inside of me. So when I returned back to the UK, there was no fear. There was no fear of failure. I think that's the biggest thing is that you need to recognise that there is no fear of failure. It's actually a learning. So that is ingrained in me. Um, the fact that I'm happy to step out of my comfort zone whenever makes it easier. Um, and the fact that I don't see failure as failure, I just see it as a learning and figure out a creative solution to a problem and just keep going. Um, I'm a genuine believer that there's a solution for everything in the world. You just need to find it. And you have three, is it three centers now in the IDP camp in Northern Iraq, is that correct? Yeah, so we've got three women and girls centers inside um, camps in Northern Iraq, Kurdistan. Um, and I'd say each camp has around, so one of them has 20,000, one of them is 15,000, one of them is 10,000. Uh, there's about 2.6 million people displaced in the region and with the recent Syrian conflict we're expecting more refugees to come from um, Syria and so in those three centres we've managed to help 10,000 women and girls yeah. to date and that's just two and a half years of projects running. And so when it comes to the project so I know that um, the kind of core pillars of the Lotus Flower are um, built around um, kind of six areas from the overall 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Was it a case of after your travels into the region, you realised that they were the most important needs or was it that you knew that those were what you needed to help women and girls in, that, in that, those regions? So we work very closely with the women and girls to try and understand what they want. So this comes from a lot of assessment and I guess our assessment on the ground um, found that we could be implementing projects endlessly but actually that needed some form of structure and for others to understand so I kind of see myself as a bridge between two worlds and so bringing the needs from where I'm working on the ground to other parts of the world 
I guess using the pillars made it easier for people to understand, okay, education. So under education, we've got adult literacy, computer, English language, and any other educational projects that we want to implement. Under livelihoods, we've got um, Baking Sisters, which is a baking shop and it's self-sustaining social enterprise. We've got a Lotus Cafe. Again, that's a social enterprise. We've just launched a women's business incubator where we support and microfinance um, women to start their own businesses inside the camp because actually the need is for now. You know, we, we noticed that a lot of projects that were happening on the ground were teaching women to do stuff, but actually it just stops there. So we try and close the circle by trying to provide market, market linkages or closing that loop to allow them to earn an income. And I think, actually, I'd really love to ask a question on that because I think there's one thing that I'm personally very guilty of, and I think a lot of people are, in terms of really understanding what the landscapes are in the um, in these camps and how those type of industries can happen um, in terms of, like, where do you set up that structure? Is the kind of commerce done purely within the camp or is it done with people outside of the camp? Do you build these with other entities that are also there or kind of I think it's just how these the camp, economy of the, the economy of the camp because I think obviously I'm thinking of someone that is displaced from their home and then actually they've lost access potentially their banks or their property so how does that then operate within a camp so it's it's varied um, and it depends on the camp so you have I'd say three different types of camps you've got camps where you've got cabins um, you've got camps where you've got tents. You've got camps which are makeshift, which means nobody's actually running them. They're just makeshift by the community. And there's no organising structure there. So the camps, the first two camps with the tents and the cabins, normally they're set up by an organisation and the government runs it. So you'll have security at the gates. Nobody can come in and out without permission. Um, the people inside the camps are free to go as they please uh so in terms of documents and things that's a really relevant point for example a lot of people leave or are forced to leave without anything apart from the clothes on their backs and that's it and so id cards and things like that are really really important so in an instance like that when we come across people we know that they need a lawyer to help them develop their id and get their id back so it's con connecting them with the right people um you have to collaborate with other organizations you can't just go in there and set up on your own you have to attend cluster meetings to figure out what needs are needed um, and you're not overlapping because a lot of organizations do overlap and to kind of prevent that you have to collaborate with others to ensure that you're not overlapping um, we have bigger international organizations that might not be able to implement the projects themselves so we're the local implementing partner and they'll fund the project and we implement it inside um, you have to work within the region's laws um, and work with the government to figure out what's needed. So it's always keeping your eyes and ears open and to be up to date with any new changes. Um, so there, there's a lot that goes into it, but it doesn't make it impossible. Um, we have, I'm very, very passionate about collaborating and doing things properly and having proper systems in place and um, safeguarding, due diligence, um, processes where donors would request. And so to have those from the start is really, really important because it enables you to do your work properly. I think what I've noticed with some organisations is they just go and do and they don't really think about the rest, but you do have to think about it holistically. I suppose it's the idea of it's not just the the legacy of the organisation, but it's the legacy you'll create, the, the people are then helping create for themselves. Because I suppose... Um, 
is there kind of like a I'm guessing there's no time frame to how long these women and children are going to be there because as you know it will be until any sort of conflict is resolved or there's some sort of like I don't know what the right word I was going to say repatriation but that's back into the country um the opposite of repatriation repatriation undisplacement yeah um you know and, and or returning people back to their homes um th- that's a good point and it's something that we can't predict so the those that have been displaced have been there f- since 2014 and we're now in 2019 and the regions or their villages and towns um some areas are still disputed and some areas have not been um, reconstructed. The infrastructure is not in the right place. The security might not be in the right place. Um, there's nothing for them to return back to at the moment. Although the government is trying to um, help people move back, it's very difficult, especially in the situation that we're in with the communities that we work in because they were so traumatised by what had happened. It's actually quite hard to instantly go back to where you've just witness your family members being killed or where you were taken and um, raped and sold on as sex slaves. It's, you know, you have to deal with the human side of the trauma first. And also, it's so unpredictable. I mean, I never predicted that we'd be in 2019 and what's happening in Syria with the Kurds now, I never predicted that would have happened. And so now we're facing a possibility of more refugees fleeing into the region, so it might increase the humanitarian crisis. And where do you start with the kind of the planning for that eventuality of like additional refugees, obviously kind of coming on mass to the camps? And where where do you even begin to start laying out operationally uh, to support that? I think for us, because we've been operating for two and a half years and we've got our processes and systems in place, we're in a better place. Um, what would normally happen, for example, now I know the UN is preparing camps in the region. So if those camps are being prepared, I guess our role would be as a first emergency is to prepare kits that they would need. You know, imagine being displaced and forced out. You would just need the bare basic essential kits. So I think the first couple of months would be providing those essential kits. And with winter coming, when winter essential kits Um, And then once the situation settles down, I'd say we go into what we're normally doing, which is the long sustainability angle of it and trying to support the women and girls to see where we can help them. But mental health trauma, um, that's definitely one that we would be supporting. Yeah, that's what I was going to touch on just then. I know that you've got one of your programmes is based around kind of obviously the mental health and development there and you work with... um, obviously the camp service users on things like yoga and mindfulness. Um, and that's not just day-to-day practice, but that is obviously in dealing with um, the traumas. Yeah, and, and boxing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Jack was saying Most he was popular. interested in boxing, the boxing yeah. sisters. Yeah, yeah I want to know. So actually, so this is a, a humanitarian crisis, but it'd be much, it'd be worse of a crisis if people like you and organisations like yours didn't actively get involved, which is a really wonderful and beautiful thing. And so I wanted to ask some questions about kind of some some maybe you could tell us some of the experiences of happiness that you've seen f- that have emanated from your projects. And so maybe one of those is boxing. Like maybe you could tell us uh, because it sounds quite when you hear about it, you think, OK, why is boxing relevant in this area? Yeah. So maybe you could tell us something about. So boxing goes back a few years. Um, I've actually got no boxing background, but um, a few years ago, I went to visit the the force that was created for the Yazidi women. 
to fight. Um, and I think it was it was documented by Stacey Dooley. So just before her documentary came out, I went to see the women and I was speaking to the commanders and actually what I witnessed there was something pretty phenomenal. Um, the commanders were saying they're free to fight. You know, they're very angry. They're very traumatized. They've witnessed so much and we're training them and they're free to fight. But actually, this is a really important form of anger management for them. And it's an outlay for um, releasing those emotions. And so it got me thinking, what can I do as an organization? I can't um, promote fighting. I can't promote military. I can't promote anything violent. But what can I do that will allow them to release their emotions and um, channel that trauma? And boxing was the first thing that came to my mind. And I thought, right, this is perfect. I did some research and managed to find Kathy Brown, who is actually the UK's first boxing um, professional boxer. And she's also combining boxing with therapy. And then also has uh, an academy called Boxology that trains instructors. So I thought, this is perfect. Not only will we implement boxing in the region, but we can train our women to become instructors so we can hire them and the project goes on. So it becomes a mental health, but also a livelihoods project as well. Um, so it ticked every single box. I was very apprehensive because in that community, in my region, boxing for women doesn't really exist. Yeah. You know, we're quite progressive in terms of we've got female fighters, but boxing was quite different and I didn't know how it was going to be accepted by the community. But because it's a safe social space for women, we've had no backlash from anyone. Actually, we slowly started the pilot project and it was so successful. It was unbelievably successful. The women and girls absolutely loved it. We've trained some women to become instructors. Um, I think they've had press coverage all over the world in I've every different language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen quite a few of the videos. It's amazing. There's, there's, it's just been covered everywhere. And actually, one of our instructors, Husna, I think she's a natural boxer. We would never have found somebody like her. She's so passionate. She's so committed to what she's doing. Um, and she's an orphan. To actually give someone like her an opportunity to have a passion makes it feel just unbelievably rewarding. But I can give you so many success stories. Um, we have a lot of the women and girls that come into our centres are all traumatised. So the first time they come, they're severely traumatised. But the more they engage in projects, we find that getting them engaged with other women just helps them lift themselves up. Um, I can give you a story, okay, two stories. Uh, Hafer, who is our best performing English student, is 54 years old. She's illiterate. She doesn't know how to read and write in Kurdish or Arabic. She refused to learn either of them. She said, it's my dream to learn English. So she started the English course. And actually, she's the best performing student. Wow. So that's, that's an example of actually it allows somebody, despite the situation they're in to live their dream and then in terms of opportunities we've got um no that was Munifa sorry I'm getting my names mixed up uh we've got Haifa who's a single mum and she's deaf and mute she's got three kids two of her kids were um taken as ISIS soldiers and they were indoctrinated they were rescued after a few years um her husband was killed and when she returned to the camp her family shunned her because they was, well, she was seen as a burden. She's deaf, mute, and a single mum. And so 
they didn't really accept her in her cabin. So we got her sorted out with the cabin and made sure she was okay. She went to Sewing Sisters. And then we recently launched our Women's Business Incubator program, which is where we train them in business skills and then marketing skills and then give them $1,000 to start their own project and business inside the camp. And I asked her when I went back in July, I said, hey, for what have you started? And she went, she kind of pointed at her phone and did a card and it was mobile top-up cards. And I thought, you're going to be the richest one out of all of them. Out <laughs> of all of us. <laughs> yeah. Because, so um, you, know, you know, despite being displaced and refugees and, you know, it's, it's, you, they all have phones. They all have smartphones. Everyone has a smartphone. And so for her to think, actually, everyone's going to need to top up their phones was just genius. Wow. Oh no! I want to ask more about these sort of uh, incubator programs. There must be loads of fascinating businesses that emerge that, like, you wouldn't even think about. There are. So that project, I think there was a competition that was run across the whole of the Middle East for organisations to submit a project, and we submitted that project, and it was with Care International, and we won across the whole Middle East because actually business incubators do happen around the world, but it's the first time it's happened within a camp setting um so we thought well we'll bring it into the camp these women are going to be here for years um let's get them skilled up and even if they leave and that's the important thing about what we do is even if they leave they take their skills with them so they can start again wherever they move to so in terms of what projects so we've got Hafer who's doing um, mobile phones we've got one who set up a hairdresser we've got one who set up a like a small restaurant sh stroke like shawarma place or falafel place. Um, one who's got a supermarket, one who's got a clothes shop. Oh, there's so many. I, I can't remember all of them, but there's so many. And they're so creative because you look at them and think, why didn't I think of that? It's one of those things where you, it's, it's so simple, but it's, it's so needed within the camps. And they're the ones that know what's needed. So they get to choose their projects. One thing that just made me think of uh, when you were saying about um, the woman who was kind of shunned from her family after coming back, um, in terms of these projects and incubators that you're setting up, do you have a, like, um, is there a balance that you have to create in terms of like kind of the local cultures or the people's cultures and then the activities that they're doing? Because these may be actually opportunities that back um, at home before conflict and before displacement that they would have actually never potentially had. How do you then, with them, one, either empower them to think that they can do this or that they may not have any reins attached to them now? How do you balance that with someone's kind of like upbringing and, and kind of cultural difference? Um, so for me, I think my cultural insight has helped massively. Um, I've been brought up here and I had a very liberal life. But at the same time, I know the cultural restrictions and sensitivities back home. And having that insight has been crucial because I'm not going in there to go, right, I'm going to change everything and I'm going to empower you all instantly because that's not how it works. You have to kind of work with the culture. I think the first thing that we did was gain trust amongst the community. And when I say community, I mean, you know, the men, of the, fam the, men the families, all of them. And actually, I noticed that in the camps, there's nowhere for women and girls to go. They're cooped up in their tents or cabins. The men are free to leave the camp and go. Um, or they've got restaurants and cafes made especially for men. The women don't go there. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just create a space for women. And that's not going to be 
that's not going to be contested by anyone because it's the space for women. And actually that concept has just allowed it to flourish and it's allowed it to, for the community to trust what we're doing. And so when they say we're going to the center, nobody objects. Um, it's actually opened more doors. And also I think, you know, most of the women that we work with are from rural areas. So they've never had access. That's why our adult literacy project is always oversubscribed because most of the women have never been to school. They've never had the opportunity to pick up a pen. So for it to be in a safe setting amongst other women who've got same experiences, they don't feel isolated because everyone else is in the same um, boat, then it just makes it a lot easier. So it's having that understanding and going, okay, this is going to work, but also working with them. So we ask them before we start a project, we ask them, what would you like? For example, they're all waiting for hairdressing at the moment. So I've got um, a celebrity hairstylist from here, the UK, who's going to go back and train them to do hairdressing properly. And they're all asking for it. So they will come to us and say, can you help us implement this project? And we try and figure out how. Brilliant. You got something you go yeah, well, I was no. just going to chat. Oh, okay. No, yeah. no, no, go on, no, go on. You can chat. You're like, I want to get a question in. Oh, I know. I'm, like, no, I'm, I'm just like sparking a million things here. I'm loving it. No, I just want to say that's, that's so cool and interesting that they're able... And you know what? Nice that they're able to feel that they trust you to such a degree that they can come to you with their ideas. And you're in a position to be able to like really help actualize them. And that's such an amazing thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very rewarding. And I think what's different about us is... We're very connected with the women. Um, the staff on the ground know them all really, really well. And actually all our staff on the ground are all local. So we might have a few core staff from the city, but everyone else is actually hired from within the camp. So it's you're hiring from within the community. So that's even more trust. Um, and they're all passionate. And so you can see that. And once it's like a, it's like a family. Yeah, I think kind of for me what and this connects with other stories that we've heard in other episodes that we've done and actually just in other conversations is the the most powerful thing that I think that your work does is that it's not it's not the savior complex of just like here's the band-aid because we can fund here's your food or here's your clothing it is actually setting up the foundation for self-sufficiency which is always the answer like you know it's it actually made me think of um you know, I was thinking about in terms of like the, how long the women are there and the idea that they, you know, obviously they all would love to return home. There's no intent that no one wants to go and live somewhere else. Everyone wants to return home. It reminds me of when I read um, Malala Yousafzai's book. And at the end, considering everything she went through, her dream is to go back to the Swat Valley because it is the most beautiful place she's ever known. And by doing the work that you do, that's the start of that becoming a reality. Just giving money to put a band-aid over something doesn't allow someone to then go home because they've not been given the tools to fix it. And I just think, yeah, I think that it kind of, it then reminded me of, um, uh, so I think it was one of your most recent livelihood projects is the Farming Sisters. Yeah. And obviously with the Yazidi women and it being part of their culture and their family's work for generations, it was the skills are there, the want is there. We build on this and then you feed you, you can feed yourself. Like that doesn't need someone sending money to send shipments of food if you're providing the culture for it. Um, and yeah, I mean, could you tell us a little bit more as it's a, mo a more recent one with Farming Sisters, kind of what was the, you know, is there a particular area that you're focusing on or is it kind of how's that the have the women responded to it so farming sisters came out of um one of our recent centers that we've just opened and 
it's quite in terms of space it's quite a large space and the lotus cafe is there so the lotus cafe is completely run by women so whatever money they make it goes back to them and we've got land in that area and we thought well you naturally know how to you know better than me to grow vegetables and fruit why don't you make use of the land and start growing the stuff that you can use in the cafe so that's 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 where it came from um but it's been really popular and we'll see how it spans out over the year to see if we can expand it into other regions um I think you definitely have to look at what skills are already there and what you can enhance and also what skills you can enhance for when they do return to their homes. I mean, everyone wants to go back home. Um, at the moment, it might not be a reality for some, but one day it will be. And also the women that are taken abroad, so the women that have been relocated abroad, we stay in touch with them because we know how difficult it is for reintegration and most regions take them but they don't have a reintegration program and so they feel very isolated wherever they are so if we know people or organizations in that region we'll connect them and make sure that they're looked after in that region and we'll still stay in touch with them to make sure that they're okay i want to uh, fill in my imagination about some of these projects a bit more so for example the farming sisters um uh, you've got all these talented women who uh, work in a cafe and also know how to grow things. What did you have to provide them to be able to help them kind of get to that step where they could grow things? So this is where we kind of come in in terms of our resources, funding, training. So a lot of the funding that we have gets spent on equipment for them, um, gets spent on the space if it needs any restoration. We might provide um, like three months of salary to get them to a point where eventually they can get salary full time for themselves. Um, if they need trainers, then we spend money on actually getting trainers to train them properly. So the women in the cafe, um, they all know how to cook, but we still get a trainer in to train them on how to cook safely for large numbers of people. Um and all the equipment that was bought. So Sewing Sisters, for example, is another project. That was our first ever project. And there, we trained them for three months. So we paid for the trainer, the space, the electricity, like things we don't think about, like electricity, because you have limited amount of electricity in the camps. And so we have to get a generator in and pay for the fuel and so on. And so the Sewing Sisters, once they were all trained after three months, we bought market like contracts from local regions into the camp for them to start sewing. So at that point, we just gave them the space to use for free and any income that was raised from the contracts, they were split amongst how many women that were actually on the project. So, yeah. I do have a question about the cafe because I think food is a really good way for people to visualize things, right? So have you been able to go to this cafe yet? Have you been able to? Yeah, so for the cafe, we went in July and the cafe is actually being supported by um, Asma Khan. Um, she's a chef. She's on chef's table at the moment. And she came out with us to do the opening of the cafe in July. So we went out and on the opening day, the women cooked us lots of food and it was amazing, actually, to see it working. Sadly, was it a month later, the weather was really, really bad and blew our tent off. So, but thankfully, we were donated a new tent and it's back to normal. 
Yeah, see, these are the things that you have to kind of yeah. consider in the camp context. Um, yeah, it, like not just electricity, yeah. but the actual, you know, fabric of the buildings, literal fabric of the buildings that you are. Yeah, yeah. Ah, so such a cool project. So many cool projects. You can go and eat there one day. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, as I was actually um, spending time reading through like the different pillars and the and the projects within them, I was just kind of like. I need to do this. Like, what like what expertise do I have? Like, I really want to, you know, and I, kind of, I think it's kind of, that's it. It's, I think people, to your point earlier about the being fear is, actually, sometimes it's like, you don't have to set up a project, but you're an expert in that field, so why not offer that services? You know, like some of the um, volunteering that I do within London is is kind of based on those those areas. Like, I've done volunteering where I've helped taught creative writing and marketing, because that's my my world and that is something that I can offer and it's a skill set that someone else can then take to either one just enrich themselves or they can take and actually then potentially earn income from it that's a that's a great example because actually I mean because we're so small and our funding is limited we can't afford to send out any volunteers or cover their expenses or do anything like that but we had somebody contact us um last year um Annalise and she's a filmmaker and photographer and she was going to the region and she wanted to volunteer for an organization and I just said well you can volunteer with us but we can't cover any of your costs and then we started talking and then I said you could do a storytelling sisters project which is basically teaching the girls how to do photography and then we can use those girls to do our photography on the ground um she fundraised for it. She covered all the expenses, completely went all out. It was absolutely amazing. Not only did she fundraise for the project, she fundraised for her own expenses, everything, and then actually created a training program for the girls, trained them up. They had an exhibition which went amazingly well, which might end up touring as well. So that's a great example of you can start an initiative as long as you've got the backing to support it. And I think a lot of people wouldn't even think about like contacting organizations on the ground there. Like they would want to, yeah, they'd want to help, but they, and you would be totally open to people approaching you. Yeah, as long as it's the right people. We have to do yeah. our due yeah. diligence. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was gonna say something then, it just ran straight out of my head. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose it's that point of, again, yeah, when people are trying to help, it is, they have that initial fear, but then it also is also just figuring out the the right places to go because I think obviously, and quite rightly, because at the end of the day, no one knows the work that's needed better than the people running the organisation. So first and foremost, it is you know donations and fundraising, which will go in for a plug-in in a minute when we're yeah. when we're when we're wrapping up. Um, uh, you know, so that is always going to be really important. But then people need to realise, you know, it's then it's taking that step beyond that and being like, okay, I may not have this, or I can donate my own money for my own expenses because I can then provide you this which could then potentially be more more fruitful so I definitely think it's something that people need to be aware of that they have more to give than actually just their money sometimes but the money is important and people should donate yeah Um, (laughs) but I mean I suppose kind of uh, as a as a, a next stage to that is kind of what is um what are the kind of next projects that are coming up for you or what is what is next for Lotus Flower what are your hopes for it well there are 17 million people displaced around the world. Half of them are women and girls. Um, I think there's a need for a women and girls centre like we've been implementing in the camps that we are in at the moment. Everywhere where there's a camp. Um, we've been asked to go into Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. 
Um, we've been asked to go to other places. The only thing that limits us is funding. We're a very new, small organization. And so the funding is crucial to get us to other places. I love that kind of space everywhere where there are vulnerable women and girls because it's so desperately needed. It's, it's a safe haven and a community hub for them. And it gives them back a piece of their identity day by day. And I think that's really important. Um, when you've had everything taken away from you, you've literally had your identity taken away. And there's a danger of just being stuck in in that mindset and in that area. And what we try and do is make them realize that we recognize that you're in a really bad place. But while you're here, you can do these things that can help you and help improve your life and you never know where it might end up. So it's triggering hope. Um, so I'd like a center anywhere where there's a camp around the world. So if there are any donors out there that would help make that happen feel free to contact me <laughs> so where can uh people contact you or donate to lotus flower um you can go on the website so www.thelotusflower.org um everything's on the website you can contact us through there or donate through there and the lotus flower is also on uh social media as well is it at, yes. it's at the lotus flower it's at the lotus f because flower was taken yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as i say yeah that's always they, the difficulty isn't it they should donate that to right yeah. right i mean you should have seen us trying to come up with a name for this podcast and trying to find social media handles for it across everything it's hard i appreciate that struggle as well um but yeah amazing well thank you so much for your time it has been great to get to chat to you and also just learn more about the incredible work you're doing and i kind of just, I really look forward to seeing what's next and where we can help uh, any way any step along that yeah thank you so much that was and also your work is like i don't want to say this because i don't want to come too sycophantic on the microphone but your work is so cool yeah. I think. oh thank you what a great thing to like do what a wonderful it is it is that the thing that i was saying and that like it, it's 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 providing the tools like i think there's there's such a not that it's a it's not a misjudged but sometimes a misplaced sympathy of saying you know oh you poor person like your situation here's some money or like I've done my bit and actually it's just like well you know it's not that like the, you know you speak to I'm sure if you speak to many of these women and girls and the men that are there as well like they're like yes this is happening so if you can help me with the tools I'll get the job done that's um, it and they're, they're, everyone is more than capable and more than willing and I think that's just the easiest thing that people forget and that's what I think kind of more and more the more I read and I th with um, this case in particular as well I think one thing where people can struggle is just the, the complexity of the issue because you know I spent time I was saying to Jack like I was reading up about um, kind of from your story to then 2014 and then the current um, uh, issue since um, you, the US have pulled out of Syria and even for me I was like all oh, my head is hitting saturation point because I was like, there was this faction and this faction and this acronym. And I was like, well, hold on, which one's this? And then Turkey thinks that this is this. Oh, and my brain goes. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah, it is quite incredible. And I, I think that's where people then Back struggle off and to that time. I mean, my personal uh, thing is Vox. If anyone doesn't watch Vox on YouTube, they're so good at explaining any of this kind and of Netflix stuff really well, yeah. Um, but it was, it was trying to find, and I think I read a BBC article where it was like, 
what's happening in 100... It's on one page, but they do the article in 100 words. Yes. goes straight into the same article in 300 words and the same article in 1,000 words, which is a genius way of doing it. So you can either do it depending on your time, but also on simplicity and complexity as you go forward. So I read all of them in succession so that I could, like, build and layer on my on, on my knowledge. probably more knowledge than me. <laughs> but, it, but it is, like, you know... It's complex. Um, yeah, and I think I was talking to... Um, a friend that I was uh, with on the weekend and uh, we were wandering around the British Museum and we were looking at, um, I think we were reading a sign about how the partitioning of uh, India into Western East Pakistan and then East Pakistan becoming Bangladesh. And she was like, had absolutely no idea that Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan and that was a thing. And then I was saying to her that even for me, I hadn't realised that it was like UK and France that was end of Ottoman Empire and then create Syria, Iran, Iraq and, and Turkey. And you're like... Oh, that's, okay. that's that's a really important point because as you go into new regions, you have to understand the political complexities. Like, we can't, we're non-political. You know, we're completely neutral on every ground, but that doesn't mean that you you shouldn't understand. You have to understand it. You have to understand each area and what how it's going to impact your work and what what could potentially cause more conflict or who you shouldn't be speaking to or who you should speak like it's it's really 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 important to kind of understand the political context and i think that's why we've been able to do what we do as well is because we've understood not only the cultural but the political context of the region as well um i have a pickup question because i know you do um something about journalism with the girls so I just wanted to ask you about that so i'll rephrase okay. that as a proper question okay the storytelling <laughs> sisters that's, um, that's the journalism project. Yes. Oh, so it just is for photojournalism. Yeah. Okay. Then I won't ask. Yeah. <laughs> then it's been why, why? We've covered it. Yeah. Um, no, because I oh. thought I thought maybe it was a separate type of journalism, but. Oh no, we did. We did have. We we no. Hold on. We had a project with a group of women, and it was a mixture between Christians, Yazidis, and women in the camps. Like, it was also an integration project, where. Go ask a question. I remember it. Yes, I was actually quite liking. I was like, "This is actually going to sound quite nice." To this is to. we've like, got we've got so many projects. I lose count. Well, that was it. I mean, trying reading through your website for like to research. I was like, oh, "Hold on, hold on, hold on." Like, here we go. Which you know, when looking through your website, I was like, "Man, how are we going to get this in a podcast?" Yeah, like there's too much. If you could do less good work, it would be easier <laughs> to make a podcast about. Um, no, so I saw that you uh, do work with journalism in the camps, and I was kind of curious what kind of form that took and how, like, the effect it has, because obviously journalism has a great empowerment aspect. We ran a project, and that was actually part of a integration project, so it was quite peace-building, and we picked women from different communities. So you had Yazidi women, you had um, Muslim women, you had Christian women, and you had some from the camp, and you had some from host families, because people forget that once you've got displacement, you've also got host families. So there's there's um, there's pressure on the host families because services are being pressured. And so sometimes you get hostility between the two. And so for us, it was really important to try and engage them together and help them share each other's stories and see it from different perspectives. And so that's why the journalism project was brilliant to work with. And they covered, they created a magazine local magazine and so they interviewed um each other different people people in the camps and it was a great way of giving them their power by sharing other people's stories um yeah i think that was a really really successful project we should implement another one yeah well I, do you know what, my, all my synapses are just firing being like so you know where did that end up like 
is that something I could help create a blog for? And actually we could feed those stories into a digital platform. And I think there's potential. Oh, there's, there's definitely there's potential some great, for... There's, there's some yeah. really great ideas I think we can help with in that Maybe one. they could have a podcast he's a too. He's a great website designer as well. Oh. So. <laughs> I mean, like, average website. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclaimer. Actually, yeah, average. He did do my last one and it wasn't great. No. Um, but yeah, actually... That's, that's yeah. But that's definitely that's... it. This is how we kind of work, is figuring out where people's skill sets are and how can we logistically make it work. Um... I think I think there's definitely potential in that. We I need a great way of figuring out how I can there are so many stories. I mean the amount of stories that we have in terms of the women and girls are a lot. And I think it's it's more how do I start giving them back the power of being able to write those stories or do those stories? I think for us it's resource and capacity we're so strained on resource and capacity that there's only so much that we can do but we have access to so much that we can do and potential things that we can create um yeah maybe a journalism stroke the photo journalists helping i mean the photo there were some really talented photographers unbelievable uh, that came out of the storytelling pictures um the only thing we'd need to figure out is practical things like yeah. translation yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah i'm just only thinking like it turn that into a blog that blog becomes a book that book raises money like yeah great you just put pu- the publishing deal i'm gonna i'm gonna project. i'm gonna work on a i'm gonna work on a strat and then you can decide if you want it or not <laughs> <laughs> like but yeah i and i think that's you know i think also for potential donors or anyone that just is coming across the work that's the quickest line for connection to them i think is 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 with those stories whether that is in the written word in podcast audio in video um that's the easiest way that people relate when they hear about the mother with three kids that started a cafe and it's all of a sudden like well that a hundred percent could be me because i'm a mum with three kids and i may not run a cafe but i run this and and so i think how amazing would it be if they themselves are the storytellers yeah completely because it's one thing that i get is i get a lot of people going out or asking to go out to cover their stories and we've we've done it but i think sometimes they get tired of sharing their stories because they see no result of what what's happening to the story where's it going so actually giving them the power to share their own stories is i think phenomenal and i think that's an incredible point that of if the ownership of it and actually it's not being something else that is taken away from them to someone else to either get glory or attention for it when all of it should be on them so i I think that's i think that's really important you know and is so the charity give directly i don't know if you've heard of it it's so it's a charity it runs in kenya their aim is to give 98 percent of the money they receive just directly to the people and the people who receive the donation, they write a, a paragraph or two about how it's changed, like how they're going to spend it and how it's going to improve their lives. Yeah. And, and so you get this really nice sort of testimonial when you look at where your donations go yeah. to see, oh, a person has written in their own words, which are then translated, this is what I've done with the money. I have spent it on building some corrugated shedding or I've bought a new cow, or I've decided to pay for the school fees for my children so that they will be able to have an education. And just seeing those stories associated with the charity, really, like it's what encouraged me to donate to that charity. So it's that idea of, yeah, stories and 
testimonials told by the people who are living there, I think is just, they're wonderful. Yeah, we've got a project here. Right, <laughs> that's so game. <laughs> Yeah, that was like, you know, when you, you know, what, I guess there were two things. So you guys wouldn't have heard because I turned off the microphone. But after I did, I just kept saying nice things because it's like it's rare you get to stop and talk to someone who's decided really to totally change their lives and just dedicate themselves to doing something positive and trying to say, OK, yeah, the world has problems. I can use myself, my energies, my efforts, my life to make the situation better. And when you get to see someone who's doing that and you get to talk to them about some of the results that they've seen, I just think it's a, we're in a very lucky place to be able to, a privileged place to be able to hear those stories. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think I said it a couple of times, but just to reiterate it, it is just, and it's also just the way she's doing it in, you know, actually helping these women and young girls to help themselves and giving them the tools that they need and that's you know by hearing these stories it helps us realize what we can do and actually it's not just about I don't have the money or the time but actually it's like I do have the expertise and I do have the knowledge that can help other people and it isn't just about the money that you have although as I said you should go and donate um if you can, because that would be great. But also, yeah, within your own local communities, what expertise do you have that can help other people? And I think that's one of the great messages from this is even aside from the Lotus Flower Project, maybe everyone could spend more time and go, actually, what could I give back that isn't necessarily just money? And also, as uh, you heard, you can you maybe make that approach. You know, maybe make that approach to a local charity and say, listen, this is what I could offer. And don't feel shy or embarrassed or... Yeah, it is always a good, good thing. Did you steal what I do, which is call something a good, good thing because it's the name of the show? Jack, I just wrapped it up perfectly and now you're carrying on talking and you're ruining it. I mean, you ruined it by stealing my thing. But I did it better. Anyway, if you loved today's episode... Don't forget to come and tell us how much you loved it on social media at a good, good thing. Because we would love to hear from you and we'd love to hear some of your ideas of what you think you can do to help your local communities. We will see you in the next episode. We hope you enjoy yourselves and speak to you later. Bye. Bye bye. We've got a good